Hey everyone, Noah, I'm here with an exciting announcement. You ready for it? Well, here it is. I have a new podcast. Don't worry, don't worry. I'm still doing Unpacking Israeli History. It's my baby, it really is. But I'm not only passionate about Israeli history and the Israeli people and the Israeli story. I've always been drawn to Jewish thought. It's how I originally became an educator, actually. I spent years developing curriculum in so many different areas. And don't worry, this podcast is not just me. In this new podcast, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam, my brilliant and incredible co-host, Michal Biton, and I will be thinking about, discussing, and hopefully lovingly disagreeing with one another about the latest news about the Jews. Can't wait for it. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam right now on your favorite podcast app. Do it. Do it right now. Do it right now. And guess what? I'll see you there. Or you'll see me there. Hi, and welcome back. This is Rifki, producer for Unpacked. As a reminder, we're sharing our newest show, Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel, in the Unpacking Israeli History feed. Or you can subscribe to Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel, in the same app you're listening to this show on. If you missed the first few episodes, go back. They're great, I promise. But don't worry, you don't need it to enjoy the rest of the series. So here's episode 6, Hunting Season. Yalla, let's do this. Welcome to Homeland. Ten stories, one Israel. Israel has brought together millions of Jews from across the diaspora in the world's most chaotic family reunion. This podcast is about what that really looks like. Though the series is fictional, each person is based on real stories shared with us by real people. In our last episode, we experienced firsthand the tense divisions that plague Israeli society. But division among Jews is nothing new because Roe's story exposes the deep chasms that predate the establishment of the state of Israel. Ordinarily, Roe Pinto didn't mind his job. Driving a Monit Shirut certainly be driving a city bus down Jerusalem's narrow and winding streets. He had spent four years driving along Agrippas, the long street that stretched along the Machana Yehuda market, which meant for years of dodging tourists and teenagers who thought the rules of the road just didn't apply to them. But today, he'd have given anything to be back on his old route. If his bus had broken down in the middle of Jerusalem, the passengers would have just gotten off and caught another ride, not stuck around trading stories and talking about their feelings. But the American tourist was looking at him so hopefully, and though he was annoyed, Roe did feel a little burst of pride when he thought about his family. Sixth-generation Jerusalemite? How many people could say that? So he sighed, took out a fresh cigarette, and stuck it in his mouth unlit, and began to talk. What's your name again? Mine? It's Emily. And remind me how to say yours? Roy. Roy Pinto. It means, uh... Shepherd. My shepherd. That's pretty. So where did you grow up? Jerusalem. My whole life. Has the city changed a lot since you were a kid? Yes, of course. The whole country changed. For better or for worse? Gumbegum. Both. We have more security, more technology. But we also have more traffic, more people, more balagan, politically. Tell me why we're wasting billions of shekels on a new election every two years. You know how much money these politicians waste because they don't want to work together? This appears to be a rhetorical question because Roe barrels on. These politicians, they only care about themselves. 
disgusting. They're all crooks. It's not like it used to be. My grandparents' generation, even my parents' generation, they fought to make a state. They sacrificed everything. Everything they did was for the future generation. I don't see the same attitude in our politicians today. Meanwhile, the ordinary people, they are the ones paying the price. Emily knows she's out of her depth talking about the unholy snarl of Israeli politics. Plus, she isn't exactly eager for another taste of Roe's formidable temper. So, she focuses on what really interests her. Roe's family history. Your grandparents fought for the state? You mean like in 1948? Even before. I told you. We are six generations in Jerusalem. Six? Wow. My children are seven generations. That's incredible. We've been fighting for this country since the beginning. 1929, 1936, 1940s. Dumb question, but were there, like, wars then? I'm guessing that the fighting in the 40s had something to do with World War II, but who were they fighting before then? Arabs, British, for a short time, even Jews against Jews. I didn't know about any of this. Even in my family, there was fighting. What do you mean? My mother's father, Savasvi. He had a difficult life, he and his siblings. And they had um, differences. What kind of differences? The kind that ripped our family apart. Amada Beneviste's first thought about learning she was pregnant was, please not twins again. Her husband Yosef laughed at her. You're exaggerating, he said. Look how good the twins are. It'll be fine either way. <laughs> Easy for him to say. Yosef only saw his three children in the evenings or on Shabbat when they were sleepy and sweet. When they clamored all over him for attention, each more eager than the next for a story, a hug, a cuddle. He didn't see Esterica bossing around her twin Rafi, or hear their little brother Isaac screaming for attention when Amada was busy breaking up another one of the twins' fights. And he certainly wasn't changing any diapers. Or laundering them. Plus cooking, plus keeping the house in some semblance of order, plus doing the shopping. She took a deep breath. Please, no more twins, she prayed. It wasn't twins. Thank you, she whispered, holding the baby tight. Isaac, now three, leaned over to look at his little brother. He's all red, he observed. That's good, Yosef said. It means he's healthy. Can I hold him? Isaac asked. Not right now. When he gets a little bigger, okay? Amada felt a flash of tenderness toward her son, no longer the baby. The only one of her children with her green eyes, her long, long lashes, her skin that freckled in the sun. Her older sisters used to tease her that she was adopted from an Ashkenazi family. She vowed that her children would never torment each other the way her older sisters had tormented her. Though Esterica seemed to be doing her absolute best to destroy that promise. He's so small, Isaac said, poking the baby's foot gently. Look how little his foot is. It's true. He's going to need you to protect him, Amada said. Isaac nodded solemnly. I'll share my candy with him, Isaac promised. The ones from Hamid? What a good boy, Amada said, kissing his head. So thoughtful. Hamid owned the kiosk down the street. He seemed to favor Isaac, pushing nuts or chocolates on him constantly, waving away the payment. 
He reminds me of my grandson in Hebron, he'd explain. The same green eyes. What's his name going to be? Isaac asked. I don't know yet. What do you think it should be? She asked, assuming he'd say something silly, like his own name. But instead, Isaac said, Tzvi. His name should be Tzvi. Amada paused. It was a beautiful name, and she had already done her duty, naming her children after their grandparents. Tzvi. It meant deer or gazelle. A perfect name for a fleet-footed boy running through the Jerusalem hills. Noble and beautiful and strong. A name chosen by his brother. A brother who had promised to protect him. Eight days later, on the 26th of Elul, 5680, September 9, 1920 to the rest of the world, Yosef and Amada Beneviste officially welcomed their son Tzvi into the Jewish people. Caminos de leche y miel, the neighborhood's old ladies whispered to the baby. May you follow the paths of milk and honey. Amen, Amada would respond over and over, kissing her son's head. She had every reason to believe that this blessing would come true. The Ottomans had been gone for three years. The British, who had taken over, had officially declared their support for a Jewish homeland. Independence was coming. Everyone could feel it. Her baby would never remember a time before a self-determining Jewish state. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Why did your family speak Spanish? Not Spanish. Ladino. The language for Sephardic Jews. Like Yiddish for Sfaradim. So your family is Sephardic? Yes, on both sides. But my father's side is from Greece. Uh, they were not lucky like my mother's side. What do you mean? The Sephardic community in Salonika was... Um... He gestures with his hands as though wiping them clean. The meaning is clear. Gone. Killed in the Holocaust? Yes. There were 50,000 Jews in Salonika before the war. After, less than 2,000. My grandfather and his cousin escaped and came here, but no one else from their family survived. I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize that there were Sephardic communities in Europe. I thought the Holocaust was basically an Ashkenazi thing. Many Saradim died in the Holocaust. In Greece, in Sarajevo, in Bulgaria. The Nazis came in North Africa, too. There were labor camps with terrible conditions. In Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. Rowi nods at Elon, who nods back heavily. I didn't know any of that. That's horrible. The Nazis were very popular here, too. Among Arabs here in Israel and in the rest of the Middle East. Arabs were pro-Nazi? Not all of them, of course, but there were parts of Arab society that were very influenced by Nazi propaganda. And even before the Nazis, the Arabs here knew how to use propaganda against us. This is something my grandfather saw himself. What do you mean? The Ottomans left in 1917, after World War I, and Israel, which was called Palestine then, went to the British Mandate. Now, the British supported the Jewish state. They gave approval in 1917, and then again in 1920. 
but there were Arabs who were very unhappy about that. Okay. The more Jews came here, the more unhappy the Arabs were. They had a riot against Jews in 1921, and the British were not able to stop them. And then, eight years later, there was terrible violence here. And it started because of propaganda. Was anyone in your family hurt? Not physically, but I think inside. They carried trauma with them forever after this. Amada had never liked the Hebrew month of Av, the dog days of summer, when even the air seemed to sag, pressing down on Jerusalem until she wanted to scream. The first nine days of Av were days of mourning. No meat or swimming or haircuts or even laundry. The ninth day of Av was a fast day, commemorating all of the major tragedies of the Jewish people. The destructions of both holy temples, of course, but also the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the signing of the Alhambra decree that expelled Amada and Yosef's ancestors from Spain. But this Av, in the summer of 1929, was different, worse. Anyone who was paying attention knew that something was coming. Jerusalem had been seething since the previous Yom Kippur. For months, the Mufti of Jerusalem had campaigned to make Jewish prayer at the Western Wall impossible. He sent donkeys through the plaza allotted for Jewish prayer, purposely held loud ceremonies specifically when Jews were praying, spread all sorts of lies about a Jewish plot to take over the wall, to destroy or defile the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Amada didn't spend a lot of time at the wall, but she had never been afraid to go there until now. Yosef was agitated when he came home on Monday evening. It was two days before Tisha B'Av, and Amada and Esterica were rolling rice into neat packets of grape leaves. This looks delicious, Yosef said. He kissed Esterica's head. Nina, go find your brothers for a minute. I need to talk with your mother. Happily, Esterica said, untying her apron as she went. She hated cooking. Amada pitied her daughter's future husband. What's wrong? Amada asked. Yosef shook his head. I had a patient today come in with a stab wound. Hashem Yishmor, Amada said. Will he live? Oh, he'll live, Yosef said, his face grim. He left the hospital almost as soon as I looked at it. I told him it will get infected if he doesn't take proper care of it. You know what that Asno told me? Yosef ordinarily didn't call his patients jackasses, so it must have been something bad. What? That he needed to leave immediately because he's planning to demonstrate at the Kotel on Tisha B'Av. He and his hothead friends need time to plan their demonstration, apparently. Yosef shook his head. This is exactly what we need. A bunch of fools inflaming the situation. Amada tilted her head. I don't know, Yosef. I don't know if I disagree with them. Are you crazy? asked Yosef. Things are already bad. Do you think we need them demonstrating, making everything worse? Amada shrugged. Where does it end, Yosef? We can't pray at our holiest site. I'm afraid to walk through the old city. Someone needs to show the Mufti that the Kotel doesn't belong to him and his... his... thugs. You think he's not going to retaliate? Yosef retorted. Don't you remember what happened in Yaffa in 1921? It's going to come here. And it's going to be even worse. Mark my words. What's coming here? Asked Isaac, sidling up behind his mother. Ooh, Yaprakas. He lifted a stuffed grape leaf and popped it in his mouth. So, 
What's coming here? He repeated. Trouble, Yosef said wearily. He looked hard at his twelve-year-old son. He was almost bar mitzvah, and yet such a little boy, his eyes flashing with childish mischief. I want you to be careful for the next few weeks. Stay out of trouble. Keep your siblings out of trouble. And don't go anywhere without telling your mother first. Isaac frowned. Why? There are going to be demonstrations, Yosef explained. Hooligans trying to prove a point, And I have a feeling they're not going to be pleasant. What point? That's not important, Yosef said. Promise me you'll stay out of it, no matter what you see or hear. He stared at his son, until Isaac nodded. I promise. But his promise had no power in the face of a mob, because the trouble came to them. Amada and Yosef often joked that nothing hurt her more than admitting she was wrong. But it turned out that being wrong had nothing on being forcibly evacuated from her home. On returning a week later to a house whose door swung uselessly on its hinges, whose walls bore scorch marks, Amada wandered the room in a daze, stepping gingerly over broken crockery. They took the candlesticks, she said. The Seder plate. Why do they need a Seder plate? She started to cry. Later, she'd feel ashamed of her tears. They had been lucky. Certainly luckier than the Mizrahis three doors away, whose son had been murdered on the first day of the riots. Luckier than the refugees who streamed in from Hebron, bearing stories too terrible to be believed. Yosef treated their wounds in the hospital and woke at night with tears on his face. It was the first time Amada had seen her husband cry. Soothing him made her feel like a liar. There was no truth to the words, it will be all right. How could it be all right for the children who had seen their parents murdered in front of them? For the women who had been so thoroughly violated? For yeshiva students that had barricaded themselves inside the house of a well-connected man, only to be struck down until the floors were slippery with their blood? Everywhere she looked, there was pain. And perhaps that's why it took so long for her to notice that something was wrong with Isaac, that the riots had taken her son away from her and replaced him with a boy who never smiled, a twelve-year-old who suddenly spoke with the fervor of a prophet or a lunatic, a boy who had developed, seemingly overnight, an uncompromising stance on justice. He talked constantly of what the victims should have done, of what they should do for next time, because he seemed convinced that there would be a next time. They were idiots in Hebron, he said one night, a few weeks after the riots. They should have taken the Haganah's offer of protection, or better yet, protected themselves. Really, Isaac, Amada said, that's how you speak about those poor people? They lost everything. Have a little respect. Isaac lifted his chin defiantly. I would have protected myself, he said. I would have gone out and killed those lousy Arabs. You're 12 years old, Amada said wearily. I hope you never know what they did to the 12-year-old in Hebron that day. It's very easy to say what you could have done, Yosef added. A lot harder when it actually happens to you. And I hope very much, Amada said, staring at her son, that you will never need to protect yourself and that you won't go looking for a reason to. Do you understand me? Isaac shrugged. I'm almost a bar mitzvah, which means I'll be a man. A man, 
Amada stared at her son, his cheeks still round with the softness of childhood. He was no more a man than she was a ballerina. But before she could respond, Rafi broke in. Amada's oldest son was quiet and soft-spoken. Well, of course he was growing up with a twin like Estherica. And between Estherica's prickliness and Isaac's fire and Svi's sweetness, Rafi got a... a bit lost. He was the only one of her children who had simply looked at the wreck of their home, his face paling, his mouth growing tight. But instead of sobbing or raging or standing there uselessly, mouth open in shock, he had squared his shoulders and began sorting all their broken possessions into piles. Repair, throw away, replace. He had done what she couldn't, Amada realized. Almost immediately, he had started to rebuild. And without ever raising his voice or issuing a command, he had marshaled every single member of the Benavista family to restore the house to some semblance of order. So when he spoke now, everyone listened. You're right, Isaac, he said. We should protect ourselves. Isaac nodded, surprised to see his usually mild-mannered older brother agreeing with him. But then, Rafi continued. But do you know why more Jews didn't die in Hebron? Isaac shook his head. You don't think enough people died that day? He asked mockingly. Rafi refused to rise to the bait. More people didn't die because their neighbors hid them. Their Arab neighbors. Some of them at great personal risk. Isaac scoffed. And some people were killed by their neighbors. What's your point? We should trust every Arab until he stabs us in the back? My point, Rafi said slowly, is that you shouldn't be so excited to assume that everyone is your enemy. He paused. Is Hamid your enemy? Isaac crossed his arms. It was clear he wanted to say yes, just to prove his brother wrong. But even he could not get away with such a blatant lie. He'd known Hamid since the day he was born. So, instead he said, Where was Hamid during the riots? Did anyone ask him? Did anyone ask a man in his 70s whether he was out rioting? Estherica said sarcastically. I'm sure he was leading the mob with his walking stick. You're such an idiot, Isaac. And what about Hamid's grandson in Hebron? Isaac barreled on. Did anyone ask him where his precious grandson, Halil, was when Jews were being slaughtered? That's exactly what I'm saying, Rafi responded. These assumptions are going to poison you. How can you walk around pretending everyone is your enemy? Look at our house, Rafi! Isaac exploded, pointing to the scorch marks that still lingered on the wall. Are you blind? You think we don't have enemies? Why must you misunderstand everything I say to you? Rafi asked mildly. Are you so eager to be upset? Stop it, Zvi yelled. They all turned and looked at him in surprise. His face was red. Stop, he repeated. Stop fighting. You're not helping. He took a deep breath, as though trying not to cry. I want to talk about something else. He's right, Amada said, reaching to squeeze her youngest son's hand. You aren't helping anyone. I don't want to hear another word about the riots from any of you. You understand me? She narrowed her eyes at Isaac. He nodded sullenly. And though it cost her to do so, Amada smiled at her youngest son, the only one who could ever talk Isaac down from one of his tirades. Excellent idea, Yosef said. Tell me, how's school going for each of you? New year, new grade, new teachers. 
who was enjoying their new classes. All four of his children groaned, and the conversation moved on to other things. Sometimes, even when she was very old, Amada would think about that summer, the moment her little boy, Isaac, had taken on the anger of a man, one of the last times that his younger brother was able to quiet his rage. But Isaac's rage grew with every year, and it became harder and harder to quell. Not that he was alone. After the riots of 1921, the Jews of Palestine had experienced an eight-year lull, little flashes of violence here and there, but mostly peace. But after 1929, it seemed that things were getting worse and worse, that her children were destined to grow up against a backdrop of turmoil and strife. Milk and honey, she thought bitterly, that old blessing seemed worlds away from her baby's reality. The immigration limits came in 1930, a reminder that the Jews were not in control of their own destiny, were unable to welcome their brothers back home. Tensions kept rising. And then, in 1933, that frightening new government in Germany. If the British restrict immigration again, Yosef said, he trailed off. They all knew what lay at the end of his sentence. You think it will be worse in Europe than it was here in 29? Amada asked. Yosef shrugged. This Hitler fellow and the Mufti seem to be cut from the same cloth. They certainly like their propaganda, and we've seen what a few ugly fictions can do to a population. We'll have to pray hard that the British don't restrict immigration again, Amada said. From the corner, 16-year-old Isaac, tall and seemingly getting taller by the day, snorted. You know we can do more than pray. There are groups actively helping immigrants come here. We know, Amada said wearily, and they're doing a great thing. But there's no harm in praying for a helpful hand. Si no viene la hora del Dios, no cae la hoja del arbol. Yeah, yeah, Isaac said dismissively. Without God, even leaves don't fall from the tree, we know. Don't talk that way to your mother, Yosef commanded. Apologize, now. Isaac looked at his mother. I'm sorry, Mama, he said, and his voice was sincere. But I don't think there's anything wrong with helping him along, working hand in hand with God to bring Jews home, right? Amada sighed. Why does my son have to be on the forefront of every fight, huh? Isaac laughed sardonically. It'll be all of us soon enough, Mama. Believe me. God forbid, Amada said. But of course, he was right. By 1936, fear was once again Amada's constant companion. It started with the boycott of Jewish products and businesses, but the economic toll was nothing compared to the death toll because what started as a boycott quickly spiraled into violence. Jews murdered simply because they were Jews. It's all over the country, Yosef said one night. There's violence against Jews in Haifa, in Yafo, in Tel Aviv, in Akko. There's nowhere they can't reach. Don't talk like that, Yosef, Amada said. We have to be realistic, he countered. We have to be prepared for when it comes here. Don't worry, Isaac broke in. There are measures we can take. Not this again, Amada said. Enough talking about arming yourself and weapons and self-defense and all of that. Please, enough. Someone has to do it, Mama, Isaac said. Yes, but why does that someone have to be you? An old refrain. 
a well-worn conversation. Isak didn't even bother answering. She knew what he would say. Soon enough, it will be all of us. Tsvi and Rafi too. Even Estarika if she wants to fight. All four of her children fighting? Amada refused to even consider it. We have to face the fact that they aren't children anymore, Yosef said later that night, after he and Amada had retired to their room. He's 20 years old. If he wants to fight, we can't stop him. You already know he's staying out till all hours doing God knows what. I wish we could be angry with him for a normal reason, Amada said sadly. Like that he's getting drunk on Arak or going to card games. Yosef turned to her. You wish your son were a drunk and a gambler? He asked in shock. Wouldn't that be safer than what he's doing now? She asked. He's doing a good thing for Am Yisrael, our people, helping our immigrants, defending our towns, and putting himself in danger every night, Amada said. We don't know that for sure, Yosef countered, and the less we know, the better. Let's try not to think about it too much. It'll drive us both insane. But it was impossible not to think about it, especially when Isaac mentioned he was moving out. You're going to live somewhere else? Yosef asked. What's wrong with living here with your family? I can focus better somewhere else, he said. A flimsy answer, and they all knew it. Can we cut all this nonsense? Estarika interrupted, reaching across the table for another helping of Bundigas. We all know he's lying. We all know what he's doing. Let's not pretend like he's being clever here. Isaac shot his sister a poisonous look. She smiled sweetly at him in return and speared another meatball. Just say you're going underground with your stupid little gang, she said. We all know what you and your friends get up to. Don't treat us like we're stupid. Oh, really? Isaac asked, his face aflame. And what exactly do I get up to? Killing Arabs, she said plainly, and trying to kill British officers, making our lives significantly more difficult. Go underground, you're putting us all in danger. You have no idea what you're talking about, Isaac said. Enough, Yosef shouted, slamming his hands on the table. He looked at his daughter. I advise you to be much more careful about what you say. The wrong word to the wrong person. He shook his head, his voice trailing meaningfully. Quien si será la boca, moscas no entra, Amada added. Flies don't enter a closed mouth. Esterica scowled, but she nodded. I won't talk about it, but that doesn't mean I can't tell him how stupid he's being. Isaac started to protest, but Yosef cut him off, holding up a hand. You're 20 years old, a man. I can't stop you from doing whatever it is that you're doing, but you know what they say. Quien con perro se acuesta, con pulga se levanta. Lie down with the dogs, and you get up with fleas. Great, Isaac said sarcastically. Is that it? Are you all done telling me how terrible it is that I'm defending our home? There are a lot of different ways to defend your home, Rafi said suddenly. Oh, really? Isaac said sarcastically. What, like burying yourself in books while the British sell you out and the Arabs set your home on fire? What do you think is going to happen when we have a state? Rafi asked. Someone is going to need to set down laws and plan cities and create roads and figure out a way to take in all the Jews who are going to come here from Europe without collapsing into debt. We're not going to have a state if cowards refuse to take what's ours, Isaac shot back. There's not going to be anything to defend if you and your idiot friends don't stop making trouble, Rafi shot back. Ribono shel olam, what did I do to deserve this kind of fighting in my own home? Amada wailed. 
You think you're the only person who cares about justice? Zvi asked suddenly. Amada had never seen her youngest son stand up to his brother. He'd never had to. True to his promise, Izak had been Zvi's protector their whole lives. Izak frowned. Of course not. Tell me something. What do you think about people who disagree with you? Zvi asked. I think they're wrong. But what do you think should happen to them? Zvi pressed. Happen? What do you mean? Nothing should happen. Izak paused. Unless they're actively working against us. Like the British. Or the Arabs. But someone like Rafi, Zvi said. Or Estherica, or me. Someone who thinks there's no point in striking first. Someone who isn't a fighter. What do you think should happen to us? I don't understand what you're asking, Izak said. I don't want anything to happen to you. What kind of ridiculous question is that? I'm doing this for you. Zvi nodded. Then, I wish you luck. Izak hugged his entire family before he left. Even Esterica. Even Rafi. But it was Zvi that he held the longest. Zvi, who made his eyes well up when he left. I don't get it. Where was Izak going? He was going to join the Etzel, an underground military movement. There were three of them. Three underground military movements, I mean. The Haganah, the Etzel, and later, the Lehi. Why did they need three? Because they started to disagree with each other. About what? Strategy. What to do about the British and the Arabs. At first, there was only the Haganah. The defense, that's what their name means. In the beginning, they were small and disorganized, but after the riots in 1929, they became like a real army. Small, without money, but still very disciplined. After 1948, they became the Israeli army. What about the other two groups? To understand the other groups, you must understand that the Haganah had a policy of Havlaga. He looks around at the Sherut, the shared taxi, seeking help with the translation. Restraint. Yes. They had the policy of restraint, meaning they wanted only to defend, not to attack first. Reasonable. But violence against Jews got worse and worse. And there were people who thought they needed to attack the Arabs first, to do a, um, hatra. Deterrence. Yes. So they split from the Haganah and formed their own group, Etzel which is the short way of saying Ergums Va'i Le'umi. So, Etzel is an acronym, and they were more militant than the Haganah. They believed in preemptive attacks. Yes. What about the third group? They were very small and a little crazy. Crazy how? Mm, very extreme. I'll, I'll explain after. So, your uncle joined the one that wanted to strike first, what was it called? Etzel, or the Irgun. And he had to go underground because I'm assuming none of this was legal. Exactly. They were not happy and they worried. But soon after, everyone was worried about everything. Because remember, this was almost World War II. At first, Isaac would come home often. His family got used to having him show up on random evenings. He'd sit at the table and eat like he'd been starved. Ask for updates, but volunteer no information of his own. But the visits tapered off as 1938 dragged into 1939. Every time the news reported a bombing, his family would wonder, Is that him? 
Was he there? Is he even still alive? I don't even know how to get a message to him, Amada said. He doesn't even know that Estherica is getting married. How can she get married without her brother there? He'll come, Svi said. He'll hear about it, and he'll come. I know it. Amada eyed her youngest son. Nineteen years old, but he looked like a baby. He'd never stop looking like a baby to her. I hope you're right, she sighed. Bad enough he didn't come home for Passover. But to miss the wedding? She shook her head. I hate living like this. Waiting, no news, no nothing. He'll come, Mama, Svi insisted, putting his arm around his mother. I promise. And he was right. Not that they recognized him at first. Svi was the first to realize that the Hasid lurking in the corner wasn't just a stranger in search of a free meal. It was his brother. And unless he had become deeply religious, which Svi doubted, the getup was a disguise. So, Rabbi, tell me, said Svi, coming up behind his brother. Are these real? He tugged at the short little sidelock swinging by Isaac's ears. Got that out, his brother said, grinning. He pulled Svi into a hug. How could you tell? I thought this was a pretty good disguise. I just looked for the ugliest person and found you right away, Svi joked. Oh, really? Isaac asked, seizing his brother in a headlock. Am I still ugly from this angle? Svi raised both arms, laughing. You win, I surrender. You're gorgeous. The ladies are forming a line as we speak. Good, Isaac said, because the girls I work with are all taken. You work with girls? Svi asked. He lowered his voice. They kill people? There are lots of things girls can do in the organization, Isaac countered. You've seen some of their handiwork around the city. Propaganda, of course. More and more posters had been appearing on Jerusalem's walls, bearing anti-British messages or images of raised fists. Svi felt a flash of admiration for these girls, whoever they were. The British did not take kindly to this kind of propaganda, and they had no compunction about sentencing women to jail. I don't know how you live like this, Svi said. All of you. But he would learn soon enough. Because within a few months, the world had tipped into war. Why did your great uncle wear a disguise? Many in the Etzel were disguised and had code names. It was dangerous. Menachem Begim was the master of disguises. He was disguised as a law student, then later as a rabbi. Every time the British got close, he changed the skies. Begin. That sounds familiar. He was the leader of the Etzel, and also a prime minister from 1977 to 1983. You should read about him. He was a very, very interesting person. Mm, depending on who you ask. Roy sighs in annoyance. <sighs> I didn't say good or bad. I said interesting. This is true. Think whatever you want about him. He pauses and says defiantly, Though I think he was a hero. Galina opens her mouth to rebut, but Emily, uninterested in a political argument, cuts her off. So your great uncle worked with him or worked under him? I don't know how much they saw each other, but I think my great uncle Isaac was very important in the Etzel. That's what I have heard. I've. I never met him. This story is going to have a sad ending, isn't it? I told you. It ripped the family apart. But why? It sounds like they were all more or less on the same side. Like they wanted the same things. Yes 
And no. Because in 1941, my grandfather joined the British Army. Tzvi dreaded having to tell his parents that he was joining the British Army. He heard their voices in his mind. Don't we have enough to worry about with Izak? Or why can't you go to university like Rafi? Or even, you know, there are other ways to help without picking up a gun. But they surprised him. I don't like it, his mother said when he gave her the news. She looked tired. Had she always had those lines around her eyes and mouth? Those silvery streaks in her hair? Or had the past few years squeezed the joy out of everything, made her shrivel with worry and fear? I also don't like it, his father said. Yosef looked the same way as he always had, except his hair had gone completely white. Zvi was taller than him now. He felt almost disrespectful seeing his parents shrink before his eyes. But I understand, his mother continued. She and his father exchanged a look. One of those married people glances, freighted with meaning. We understand. You do? he asked. His mother sighed. If the Germans come here, we're finished, she said. There will be nowhere safe left. No mother wants her son to be the one on the front lines, but if we don't stop them from coming here, there will be no more Jewish mothers and no more Jewish sons. Your mother is right, Yosef said. The Germans are already in North Africa. The Italians are already bombing Tel Aviv. It's only a matter of time until they conquer Egypt and come here. I think that's where they're sending us, Zvi said. Egypt. His mother closed her eyes, put a hand on her heart. Don't tell me anymore, she said. I can't hear it. I don't want to know. I'm sorry, Mama, Zvi said. Me too, she said bitterly. Me too. But he lived. We know he lived because you're here. He lived. He fought in Egypt. Then he decided he wanted to protect Jews here in Israel. So he joined the Palmach. What is that? It's the elite unit of the Haganah, like your Navy SEALs. Got it. Oh, wait, I thought you said that the Etzel and the Haganah didn't like each other. Was this the thing that ripped them apart? Not right away. So what happens? You have to understand. It was a war. It's true the Haganah and the Etzel didn't like each other, but they were practical. So at the start of World War II, men from the Haganah joined the British Army. I don't know about men from the Etzel, but... For most of the war, the Etzel left the British alone. They had some sense. They knew it was bad for everyone if the Nazis won. But then, in 1940, there was a split in the Etzel. The most extreme ones from the Etzel formed the Lehi, and they thought the British were the real enemy. How could they possibly think that the British were as bad as the Nazis? Because the British were not letting Jews come in. In 1939, they said that for five years, only 75,000 Jews could come in every year. After that, no more Jews at all. And they also put restrictions on selling land to Jews. 75,000 a year. Honestly, I have no sense of scale, but I'm guessing that's a small number. There were nine and a half million Jews in Europe then. And during the 40s, they all wanted to get out. And very few places would take them. Okay, I'm starting to get why the Lehi were so anti-British. Yes. They thought that, in their own way, 
the British were just as responsible as the Nazis for the murder of Jewish people. Because if they had been allowed in, there would have been fewer Jews to murder in Europe. Yeah. Wow, it really makes you think about what might have happened if Jews were allowed anywhere during the Holocaust. Like, even the U.S. turned away refugees. Very few countries took them in. China, the Dominican Republic, a little bit in Switzerland, and Spain. But of course, you know, not enough. Yeah. So where were we? Uh, the really extreme group hates the British and starts attacking them. Mm, yes, okay. That's the Lehi. So, from 1940 to 1944, the Lehi are just a few people who are fighting the British. Everyone else, the Haganah and the Etzel, uh, they're okay. Jews from the Haganah are even fighting in the British army. But then comes 1944. What happened in 1944? The Etzel declares war on the British. Why? <sighs> By 1944, three things were clear. First, that the Nazis were going to lose. Second, that Jews were still being murdered on a scale that no one could have imagined. And third, that still no one is letting Jews in. So the Etzel was like, it's time for war. Exactly. There were enough reports of what was happening in the camps to know that the Jews were in a desperate situation. The Etzel saw that the British didn't care about letting Jews in, even when they knew what was going to happen. So they... they took things into their own hands. Yeah, I get it. What was the other group doing at the time? The, um, the moderate group? The defense one? The Haganah. Yes. It's good you ask about them. No, they did not agree with the Etzel. They were still on the side of the British. So your great-uncle was literally warring with the British because he's Etzel. Your grandpa is a British Army veteran and a Haganah fighter. So they're on opposite sides. Am I getting that right? Yes, but it gets even worse. Oh no. What happened next? What happens next is a saison. Noticing Emily's blank look, he racks his brain for a translation. Mm. The hunting season. Tzvi had fought next to David Ben Shemin long enough to know that Ben Shemin, despite being an excellent soldier, had no sense of humor at all. But Ben Shemin's plan was so outlandish, it could only be a singularly unfunny joke. Yes, that's a very funny idea, Tzvi said. Can we get serious now? I am serious, Ben Shemin said. And his face did look exceptionally solemn. <laughs> you could play poker with that face, Tzvi said. Make some money. I almost believe you. You should believe me, Ben Shemin said. It's happening, and you should be a part of it. Tzvi felt a bolt of revulsion shoot through him. None of his fellow Palmachniks knew about his brother. What was there to know, really? Tzvi barely knew where Izak was most of the time, and really, the less he knew, the better. He'd have less to spill if he ever got caught. Ben Shemin was looking at him his face impassive. What do you think? He asked. I think you'd be good at it. You think I'd be good at spying on other Jews? Yes. Ben Shemin didn't seem to realize just what an insult this was. I'm not spying on Etzel or Lehi fighters. I'm not trying to get information from them, and I'm definitely not bringing anyone to the British to die. Are you crazy? How could anyone think this is a good idea? Because they're dangerous, Ben Shemin snapped. They're hurting us. 
What do you think they're doing killing Lord Moyne? He was Churchill's friend. Churchill. You know what Churchill said after those thugs murdered his minister of state? He said he was reconsidering being a Zionist. The Prime Minister of England, who controls this region, if you haven't noticed, said he was reconsidering being a Zionist. Do you understand? Those hooligans are jeopardizing everything we've worked for. They can't see past the ends of their own noses. They have no idea what it means to think strategically. But it wasn't the Etzel who killed Moyne, Zvi protested feebly. Ben Shemin sighed noisily. Zvi knew it was a weak argument. True, the Etzel hadn't killed Moyne, but they'd been sabotaging the British for months. And they certainly weren't above killing British officers. You're making a mistake, Ben Shemin informed him. You have the opportunity to make a difference here, to get scum off the streets. That's how you talk about fellow Jews, Zvi asked, appalled? Scum? You should be ashamed of yourself. Ben Shemin narrowed his eyes. Who are you protecting, Zvika? You think your loser brother cares about building the state? Zvi stared at Ben Shemin, shocked. Oh, you think we don't know? We know everything. I told you, we're watching them. And your brother is high up. I think he'd have a lot of things to tell us. Lots of plans he could share. Don't you think so? I think you're insane, Zvi spat, walking away. Better insane than a traitor, Ben Shemin called after him. Emily's mouth is hanging open. It takes a moment for her to compose herself. But when she does, her voice sounds tremulous. Let me just make sure I understand. The Haganah was spying on the other military groups. Spying, kidnapping, getting information, sometimes even with torture. And sometimes they gave them to the British. A few times the British killed them, but a lot of the time they sent them out of the country to a camp in Africa. This is what happened to my great-uncle. Oh my god. Did his brother turn him in? Your granddad? No. My grandfather tried to warn him. He knew it wasn't safe. He knew they were watching him. So he gave a message to someone in his family to give to his brother. But it was too late. They were watching all of the houses. The parents, Esterikas, Rafis. When Isaac came to see Esterikas' new baby, they picked him up. The Haganah turned over my grandfather's brother to the British, and the British sent him to Africa, to the camps for criminals. My grandfather went to his trial, and my great-uncle spit in his face. But it wasn't his fault. He tried to warn him. I know. But my great-uncle didn't care. I think he saw it like... The Haganah had stopped him from doing something very important. He felt useless, just sitting in the camp instead of helping. So, he didn't talk to my grandfather after that. How long was he in Africa? Three, four years. Uh, remember, the British left in 1948. So he came back, my great-uncle. And he went directly into the army to fight against the Arabs. Did he ever make up with his brother? No. There's a pause, thick and heavy, as the Sherut digests this. And then Roe speaks again. He died in Latrun, a very important battle, very early in the War of Independence. Emily puts her hand over her mouth, her eyes wide with horror. No offense, Roy, but I hate this story. Roe smiles sadly. <laughs> 
we forget how much they struggle to bring us a state. How much they sacrifice. I can't believe Jews turned in other Jews. You want to know the worst part of it? How does this get worse? <laughs> Only a year after they caught my great uncle, they started to work together. The Lehi, the Etzel, and the Haganah. What? Yeah. After the war, the British still didn't let any of the Jewish refugees into the country. You have so many refugees, orphans, widows, babies. One of the British ministers even says, why do they need to come here? They can go back to Europe. <laughs> he says, Holocaust survivors can go back to Europe. Can you imagine that? Wow. So this was, uh, what's the expression? Uh, the final straw? All three of the groups, the Haganah, the Etzel, the Lehi, they get together to fight the British, to give them hell. Why would the Lehi and the Etzel agree to fight next to people who had turned them in? Ah, now you will hear why I think Menachem Begin is a hero. He shoots a pointed look at Galina, who rolls her eyes. Remember that Begin was the leader of the Etzel. He told his people not to fight back against the Haganah, even during the Saison. I think he was the only reason we didn't have a civil war. Because they came close, even after the state. But that's a story for another time. This is unbelievable. I don't even know what I feel right now. My family gave everything. Everything. Not everything. You're here, you have kids. I mean, not to take away from their sacrifice, but they didn't lose everything. Did you ever lose anyone, Emily? My grandparents. Okay. This is natural. Your grandparents, they're older than you. I was very close with my grandfather, but it was only after my brother died that I was able to understand him even a little bit. To feel what he felt. I wish he didn't live to see it, but he did. He lived to go to his own grandson's funeral. He pauses, then continues heavily. My brother was Eitan. He was my parents... I don't know how you say it. Benzikumim. The child of their old age. Yeah. I think it's a nice way to say they were surprised when he came. They already had my sister, Tali, and me. Uh, I was eight. Tali was ten. We were big kids, but we loved him so much. Tali was like another mother for him. And the two of us... Were you close? Roy closes his eyes and takes a deep breath. Yeah, we didn't have enough time. We were only starting to be... real friends. Best friends. How old was he when... She's unable to finish her sentence. He was 21. Today he would be... 37. In my mind, he's always 21. I'm so sorry. Her eyes are welling, and she's not the only one. Nahi is weeping silently but openly. Galina is sniffling. And Elun, though dry-eyed, looks like he is in terrible pain. But Roy only shrugs. His is a practiced, well-worn grief. So don't forget, there are sacrifices to make this state. Big sacrifices. No one gave it to us. We have to fight for it. Do you ever... Do you ever think that it isn't worth it? Like, 
Maybe you want to go somewhere else. Somewhere where you don't have to sacrifice as much. Roe frowns at her. You know, he said something very interesting before. He points at Chaya, who looks surprised. What was it? That if you want something, it's worth fighting for it? That the real pleasures of life come from hard working, from sacrificing, yes? Well, it's the same for me. This is my home. My ancestors are from here. Their blood is in the land. It would be insulting to leave it behind. They did this for me. Shia and Nahi are nodding, Emily frowning, and Galena opening her mouth as though to say something. But before she can respond, a raspy voice pipes up from the back. This is exactly how I feel. They all turn to look at the middle-aged woman who has just spoken. She looks at each of them in turn, owlish and unsmiling. I am Amalia. Emily. She lifts a hand in a tepid hello, but her voice has lost some of its usual luster. Yes, yes, I know. The American student. And Elaine, uh, Galina, Matan, Nahi, Shia, and Roy. I've been listening. She looks at each of them as she says their names, still unsmiling. But she focuses on Roy. Roy, we have hmm, similar stories. My family is here since 1901, the time of the Ottomans. We also saw everything you saw. Roe nods at her. Wow. But there are many differences, too. Like what? I will tell you. You know what is a kibbutz? Yes. Socialist agricultural community. I keep meaning to visit one. Yes. Now, they are not like they used to be, but this is where I grew up. Different from Roe, who is a city boy. She smiles at Roe. I'm going to start with the journey here from Europe in 1901. The rain pounds the roof of the Sheirut. Another minute ticks by on the clock. The grief settles back into its corner. An ever-present reminder of the price of home. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Homeland is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked-related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And write to us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was written by Adi Elbaz and produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz as Emily, Cameron Nikad as Roe, Rebecca Davis as Galena, and Sherry Wishard as Amalia. Audio Magic was produced by Rob Perra. I'm your narrator, Ellie Schiff. Special thanks to Hodes Aguri Wittenberg, Sarah Mayuchas, Moria Berman, and Shaked Karabelnikov. This show was made possible by support from the Coombe Family Foundation, the Crane Mailing Foundation, the Adam and Gila Milstein Family Foundation, and the Skolnick Family Charitable Trust. Stay tuned for Episode 7, which tells the story of the hardships and idealism of Israel's early pioneers. Thank you.
The news cycle is an endless stream of anxiety and it can feel hard to breathe through it. Being Jewish in 2024 is stressful. There's no denying that. But I've got great news for you. The Unpacked podcast team has teamed up with the Institute for Jewish Spirituality to create soulful Jewish living. It's the perfect antidote for your racing brain and will help you overcome the stressors that stand in your way. I can tell you that personally, it's been invaluable to me over the last few difficult months. In each episode, Rabbi Josh Fagelson uses ancient wisdom and modern mindfulness practices to help center your soul and ease you into the week. Be brave, close those eyes, take a deep breath, and tune in. Find Soulful Jewish Living wherever you listen to podcasts.